Jonah 4. Jonah 4, we're going to be looking at Jonah 4, 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. Uh, You can grab one of those. Turn to Jonah 4, 1 through 11. Jonah 4, 1 through 11. It's on page 452. Um, Very quickly before we start, just want to say thank you to to all of you. Um, If you didn't know, our our youngest son, he's a, a month old today. He was in the hospital this last week with the flu, uh, and you guys have just served us so incredibly well, sending us texts, praying for us, and bringing meals, and just being so, so incredibly supportive and so incredibly helpful. So I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, we feel loved, and we uh, felt just the uh, presence of God's grace through the work of your hands, uh, and so thank you so much, Veritas. You are very much appreciated by me and by my family. Um, really quick, you received a bulletin uh, uh, when you walked in this morning, and connected to that bulletin is a something called a Connect card, and that's just a good way for for us to to get to know a little bit about you and and find out how we might get in contact with you, get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. So please take a moment, fill that out, uh, and 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 uh, we'll get a hold of you uh, shortly. Um, well, as we bid farewell to Jonah this morning, uh, the book comes to somewhat of a uh, sudden and unsettling end. Uh, we began uh, with seeing the prophet Jonah receive a call from God to go to Nineveh uh, in Jonah 1, 1 to 3. Uh, but rather than doing as he was told, he fled to Tarshish in the complete opposite direction. That would be west, and Nineveh was east of where he was at the time in Joppa. And then uh, we moved on to look at Jonah 1, 4 through 17, where we saw God's great and severe uh, mercy relentlessly pursuing Jonah, not leaving him in his sinfulness and rebellion, but rather lovingly and severely pursuing him. Uh, In Jonah 2, we saw Jonah finally relent at this pursuit. He relented and, and he stopped and he does business with God as he was cast overboard of the ship and faced the, the danger of drowning in the Mediterranean. Uh, but by God's grace, when Jonah was cast overboard in danger of drowning, he was rescued from drowning by this large sea creature. He was swallowed by this large sea creature and he prays and he repents. And after three days of living in this in the belly of this sea creature, Jonah is vomited back out onto dry land, probably in Joppa, uh, where then Jonah was called uh, again on by God to go to Nineveh. And God graciously gives Jonah a second chance. And this is what we saw last week in Jonah 3, 1 to 10. This time Jonah receives the call of God. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches to Nineveh and repentance and revival takes place in Nineveh. And God shows much mercy to Nineveh. And this is where we left off last Sunday. Uh, And against this backdrop, uh, as our study comes to a close, you might expect that the book of Jonah will end with Jonah riding his beast off into the sunset, just full of gratitude and grace, just singing a hymn, maybe praying a prayer of thanksgiving, heart full of grace and gratitude, just so extraordinarily joyful and happy. But chapter 4 actually tells us a very different story. It doesn't end with giving us a, a sense of closure or satisfaction. The way that Jonah ends is actually very unsettling. This book comes to a close, leaving us wondering if this Jonah guy has learned anything that's taken place in his life in the last four chapters. And not only that, but it it closes with giving us a challenge. 
It closes leaving us unsettled. It closes challenging us. It closes with giving us a call to give ourselves to ruthless self-examination to see how much we're actually like this Jonah guy. We're called to honestly assess how much we're really like Jonah, how much we've really been compelled by the compassion of God, how much we've really understood and been changed by God's mercy and grace in our lives. And so this is what we're going to see this morning in Jonah 4, 1 through 11. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy. Jonah 4, 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we, we want to meet with you this morning. We want to hear from you this morning. And so, Lord, would you speak? Would you make your presence known, your presence felt, your presence sensed by us? Lord, would you help us to behold the beauty of Christ? Would you help us to behold the greatness of your mercy and your grace? And to be so compelled by your mercy, your grace, by the work of Christ, that we are compelled to make you known in our city, in our neighborhoods, and to the nations. And so, Lord, to that end, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Now, there are two main sections of this chapter. There's verses 1 to four, and this shows us Jonah's kind of pouting prayer. Uh, and verses five to 11 show us God's lesson on compassion to Jonah. So we'll look at this text according to its outline. Look with me at the pouting prophet and the compassionate God. The pouting prophet and the compassionate God. First, we see the pouting prophet. Look at verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
Uh, now, this is very strong language. Jonah, he's not a little upset. He's not a little peeved. He's like steaming, red in the face, blood boiling. He's shaking with anger and frustration. And, and why is Jonah so angry? Uh, because of, the text says, it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Some translators even say it was a great evil to Jonah. And this it that was so evil that caused Jonah so much displeasure is what we looked at last Sunday. Uh, last week, we looked at Jonah chapter 3. In Jonah chapter 3, Jonah's here, Jonah hears God's word again. He goes to Nineveh to preach his message there. And this message is that God is going to pour out his judgment on Nineveh because of their violence and because of their evil. And so Jonah goes, he preaches, and this totally unexpected thing happens. Uh, the, the entirety of this pagan, violent, wicked city believes God's message and they repent of their wickedness and their violence. And so God grants them repentance and the deliverance of Jonah's message. And we saw that this was a thorough repentance, wasn't it? Uh, from the greatest of them to the, to the least of them, they repented. The greatest of them, the king, he uh, trades his throne for ashes and trades his royal robes for sackcloth and repents and down to the least of them even their pets repent Uh, the herds and the flocks were covered in sackcloth and and they fasted and the people of Nineveh called out to God and begged him for his mercy and because the people of Nineveh repented instead of pouring out his judgment upon them the Lord poured out his mercy upon them instead of his he relented of his judgment let me tell you uh, this is probably the greatest revival that history has ever seen. Um, like never before and never since uh, has, this, has an event like this taken place in a city like Nineveh. Uh, 120,000 people repent of their sin and they turn to God and trust him. This great number of people who respond in faith and repentance is astounding. But not only that, but the thoroughness of their repentance, the humility with which they repented, the the sorrow and the conviction that they felt for their sinfulness, for their violence, the way that they cast themselves upon God for his mercy and salvation is nothing short of miraculous. And and this this is actually the stuff that, that church planters' dreams are made of. Uh, like you go into a city and you preach one sermon and just everyone is just repenting all over the place. The mayor and the city council repent. The, the, the stray cats in your neighborhood are repenting. It's just crazy. Everyone's covered in sackcloth and ashes and repenting. That's what you want to see. This is why Jonah, it, it, this is what you want to see. But, but you have to wonder, why is Jonah so angry then? Why is he so frustrated? Uh, to be sure, you know, it's not entirely out of the ordinary for prophets in the Old Testament to struggle with anger and frustration and depression. Uh, you might think of uh, Jeremiah. He was uh, literally called the, the weeping prophet. He was just a sad man. He had a hard job to do. He was sent to preach to the rebellious Israel. And, and he went on his mission of preaching to this rebellious people knowing that they were not going to repent. They were not going to respond to his message. He had a hard job. He was the weeping prophet. He was a sad, sad and frustrated man. And, and not only that, we, we see a similar uh, disposition in, in, in Elijah at times. Elijah, he was lonely. He was depressed. He was frustrated with his assignment. Elijah, uh, like Jonah in 1 Kings 19.4, Elijah prays for death, just like Jonah here, because it's all a bit too much for him. And when you look at at these two men and, and others like them, you, you can't fault them. It's most certainly understandable. But Jonah, 
just saw a remarkable, utterly miraculous fruitfulness from his ministry. He comes in and preaches one sermon and this one entire city, this 120,000 person city repents. He just saw the greatest revival in all of history. And so why on earth is he so angry and so upset? Well, look at Jonah's prayer starting in verse two. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, you do well to be angry. Now, this continues to be perplexing. Because uh, this reference here to God being a gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love sort of God, this was, this was a sort of creed amongst the people of Israel. You see this repeated much throughout the Old Testament. It's a sort of summary statement that describes the compassionate character of Yahweh. And never in the entirety of the scripture, except here, is it cause for someone to be angry with God. Uh, typically, these words are used to invoke praise, to celebrate God's grace, to give him thanks for his mercy and his loyal love. And yet here, Jonah isn't praising, he isn't celebrating, he isn't giving thanks, he's blaming, he's accusing, he's pouting, and he's doing so because the Lord showed this grace, this mercy, the same patience and steadfast love that he abounds in to the Ninevites. And Jonah hates the Ninevites. Now, this is ironic, isn't it? Because literally, Jonah is angry at God because of his compassion, the same compassion, the same mercy, the same grace that rescued Jonah just two chapters ago. And not only that, but remember at the beginning of the series, we discussed how this book is not the first time we see Jonah. Now, the first time we see Jonah is in 2 Kings 14.25, when he is sent to deliver a word of mercy and grace to the people of Judah. They don't deserve it. They, they deserve God's righteous judgment. They deserved to burn. But instead, God relented of disaster. He showed much grace and mercy, and the people of Judah were spared, and they flourished for some time to come. And Jonah was the one who happily delivered this message to the king of Judah, his people. He delivered this message to his people. And now, after all of the times that he's experienced the tender compassion and mercy and grace and patience of God, he is angry because God showed the same compassion, the same mercy, the same grace, the same patience to those who were not Jonah's people. He showed it to these Assyrian Ninevites. Why? Because Jonah was so blinded by, so entrenched in his prejudice against the Assyrians that he'd rather see them destroyed than delivered. Jonah's prejudice, Jonah is is entrenched in what we we could call nationalism. And this prejudice, this nationalism led him to be livid at the sight of these pagans, these Gentile dogs, receiving God's grace and kindness and compassion. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he reflects on this in his commentary on Jonah. He says this, It is impossible to discount Jonah's ethnicity from his reaction. He was a nationalist of the most dangerous kind, one who believes not only in defending his own territory and living for the benefit of his immediate kinsmen, but who as a consequence has a spirit of antagonism toward others and hopes that God shares his attitude. He felt that Nineveh should be barred from the grace of God. How he hated these Gentile dogs. 
And this is not just a problem for the likes of Jonah and ancient Near Eastern peoples in Jonah's day. We live in a time and place where we've seen a rise, or at least more of an openness regarding these kinds of ideologies, this prejudice, ethnocentrism, and nationalism in the U.S., And this is relevant to us as Christians because any ideology that requires antagonism toward others based on their uh, ethnicity or language or heritage is antagonistic to the most central beliefs of the Christian faith. This, This type of ideology is an assault on the gospel, the most precious treasure we have as Christians. We believe in a Savior who came to save and form a people made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Uh, This Lord's Day morning, there are peoples all over the world with all different colors of skin, with all uh, who speak many different languages, who have many differences in many different ways, but who are all approaching the same table, hearing from the same word of God. And, 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 and we have more in common with them than we do with those uh, with whom we, we share a nationality or skin color, but are not Christians. The, these are the people that we are going to spend eternity with in the new heavens and the new earth, and we are going to worship with them forever. Revelation 7-9 speaks of a great multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue in the new heavens and the new earth, praising God and praising the Lamb. Indeed, the great commission that the church has been entrusted with, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, to make disciples of all nations was given to us to the end that God may be worshiped and glorified by a people from every nation. And so therefore, this sort of ideology typified in Jonah here and that we have seen an uprise of in recent days has no place in gospel people. Uh, to, To quote Sinclair Ferguson again in his Jonah commentary, he says this, written in 1981, by the way. We are living in a period of of a worldwide upsurge of nationalism. It is plainly discernible. It may be that in the years to come, this warning note from Jonah's experience will be an urgent one for us to hear. Churches must never be conditioned by national environment rather than by the word of the gospel. But the kind of prejudices which come to the surface in waves of nationalism lie in the heart at all times. Prejudices can daily drive us from the love of our fellows and from the service of God. Our prejudices need to be exposed just as they were in Jonah's life. And once exposed, they must be destroyed by grace. He must be destroyed by grace, you see, because the nature and purpose for the church's existence, our existence as a local church body, is one which requires us not to turn our backs on the nations and our neighbors in our city, but one that requires us to turn toward them in love, in service, in evangelism, in sharing the gospel of Christ's grace and work. Now, I know that the majority of us in here are Christians, and and most of us know enough about the Bible to know that this type of ideology, this prejudice, this nationalism, this ethnocentrism that we've been talking about is bad. And probably close to none of us would, would openly express contempt for others based on their ethnicity or socioeconomic status or something along those lines. But we must be careful to watch ourselves nonetheless because if and when something like this arises in our hearts, we should repent of it immediately and destroy it by grace, as Ferguson says. But, but even beyond that, I wonder 
even if our face toward our neighbors is not one of nationalism and prejudice, how often is it one of indifference, which in some ways is just as bad? Rather, how often is our face toward our neighbor, rather than being one of love and service and evangelism, is it one of passivity and indifference? Especially our neighbors with whom we have significant differences, maybe because of the color of skin or the language differences or the cultural differences or the political differences. It may not even be an active prejudice. It may not be overt racism, but how often is our face toward our neighbor rather than being controlled by the conviction that Christ came to save and form a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue for himself? How often is it one of indifference indifference toward God's great commission, indifference toward our fellow image bearers. How often are we perfectly satisfied with being recipients of God's great compassion and mercy in the gospel, and yet let our neighbors go without hearing this good news? How often are we perfectly content to know that God has sent Christ to save a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and yet be passive in pursuing those who are different than us nationally, culturally, linguistically? And isn't this what we're revealing when we fail to take an opportunity to share the gospel with our neighbors? Or when we fail to take up the call to pray for, even go to an unreached people group in the world? Or when we fail to take advantage of the reality that there are unreached people groups living in our city? Or when we fail to pursue our neighbors and coworkers and and to invite them over for dinner? In these instances and others like them, we're revealing that rather than being controlled by the conviction of God's far-reaching compassion, we're indifferent. Our lack of compassion reveals that we haven't been wowed and captivated by God's compassion ourselves. And therefore, whether you're like the pouting prophet, overtly prejudiced and, and directly opposed to God's compassion here, or whether you're plagued by passivity and indifference to God's compassion, we need to hear this lesson from the compassionate God this morning. The Lord's response to Jonah and his lack of compassion and his prejudice is to patiently teach him a lesson about compassion. And pick it back up in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that, it, that, so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And so after this mass revival that took place in the city of Nineveh, instead of staying with these newly converted Ninevites and encouraging their baby faith, Jonah heads outside of the city to see what would happen to Nineveh. 
Uh, it seems that Jonah uh, is, is maybe he's hoping that, that, uh, that Nineveh would rather, that they would not follow through with their repentance and that the Lord would follow through with his judgment. And so he goes out and he builds a little tent for himself. That's what the booth part means. He builds a little tent for himself. And uh, he's hoping to get a good view of this destruction, this, this, uh, the, the destruction of Nineveh, which is fairly morbid. Uh, but remember, Jonah, he's angry. Uh, he hates these people. He wants them to be destroyed. And so he wants to see their fiery end. And because of this hatred, this disdain, this prejudice of Jonah, the Lord sovereignly orchestrates a beautiful little object lesson about compassion. The Lord appoints a plant to come up over Jonah to save him from the excruciating heat of the sun. Uh, Remember, he's in the desert. It's hot. He doesn't have sunscreen, no sunglasses, no AC. It's hot, and Jonah's, he's feeling this heat. Apparently, this tent that he built was insufficient to provide the kind of shelter that he needed from this summer sun. And so the Lord graciously gives him uh, shade in this plant. He causes a plant to grow. He appoints a plant, and it grows up over Jonah, and it gives him shade. And so, oh, Jonah, he's like so happy about the plant. Jonah loves plant. He, he, he loves this plant. But the Lord's not done with Jonah. The, the Lord also appoints a worm to come and eat this plant. So a worm comes up and it eats the plant. And, and then the Lord appoints an east wind to come and blow on Jonah and causes the desert sun to beat down on him to the point where Jonah is so hot, so overwhelmed by this heat, he may pass out. And then the Lord asks him some questions. Now, I don't want us to miss this part because what a response from the Lord. Like, if if I was God, I would be totally done with this guy. Jonah is insufferable. This man is intolerable. My, I, would, I would wash my hands clean of this buffoon and go on my way. But the very character that Jonah was complaining about in verse 2 is the kind of character that God is revealing right now toward Jonah. He's being gracious toward Jonah. He is being merciful toward Jonah. He's being patient with Jonah. He's being steadfast, immovable in love toward Jonah. And so instead of destroying Jonah for his malice, God shows him mercy. It's like he's taking Jonah as his stubborn child and and taking him under his arm and and gently teaching him. It's, it's, It's beautiful. And isn't this the character that we've seen on display throughout the book of Jonah? We're at our, when we're at our most despicable, when we're the least lovable, there is the God of Israel pursuing, teaching, showing, unending, relent, unrelenting, immeasurable mercy. He is the God who pursues and who loves the powders. He is the God who pursues the unpursuable, who loves the unlovable. He is the God who shows mercy to the malicious and compassion to the calloused. And so the Lord asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And Jonah responds, in the affirmative, and even says that he's angry enough to die. And in so doing, he's playing right into the Lord's hand. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So the Lord's saying, Jonah, you didn't do anything to appoint this plant. Its life was short. It's relatively unimportant. 
in the grand scheme of things, and yet you're angry, and angry enough to die over this weed, and the worm, and the wind. And how much more should I pity and have compassion on the people of Nineveh? They, they didn't know their right hand from their left. They didn't know right from wrong. They're blinded by the devil and trapped in their sin and their wickedness. Surely, Jonah, a city of 120,000 image bears, over 120,000 people is more important than your plant. And if the people don't stir up your compassion, Jonah, what about the cattle? Maybe the cattle will stir up your compassion. If you're so upset about the plant, maybe you'll be upset about the cattle. Maybe they'll invoke your compassion. This is what the Lord says. And then the weirdest thing happens. The book just ends. There's, there's no resolution. There's no response from Jonah. It comes to a sudden end, and it's rather unsettling. After this lesson on compassion from the Lord, the book just ends, and it's fairly clear as to why that is. The book of Jonah ends without any sort of resolution from Jonah because the Lord is not only teaching this lesson of compassion to Jonah, he's teaching this lesson to the reader. He's teaching this lesson on compassion to the Israelites of Jonah's day, and he's teaching the same lesson to us as God's people today. The question is not only put to Jonah and the Israelites, it's put to us. Are we going to be a people so compelled by the far-reaching compassion of God to obey his great commission? Are we going to fulfill our vocation of being a kingdom of priests, of being a great commission people in light of this far-reaching compassion of God that extends to all nations and tribes and tongues? Are we so compelled by the Lord's far-reaching compassion that we will make him known? Are we so compelled by the Lord's compassion that we will repent of our prejudices? Are we so compelled by the Lord's compassion that we will repent of our indifference toward our neighbors as recipients of the same mercy, the same compassion that Jonah received? Are we going to extend it to our city and to the nations? Because we're so often like Jonah here, aren't we? We, we look at Jonah and it's like we're looking into a mirror. We see this man who cares more about his comforts than his fellow image bearers. We're more worried about sh- what, that, that, that sharing the gospel might make it awkward and uncomfortable between us and a coworker or a neighbor or a friend than we are worried that they might not hear the gospel and have an opportunity to repent. We're more concerned with the comforts and the accoutrements than we are of Western life than we are that there are over 4,000 unreached people groups in the world. And listen, Jonah knew better. Jonah had good theology. He knew about the far-reaching compassion of God. He knew about God's grace and mercy and patience and steadfast love. And so he knew better than to be acting this way. But beloved, if Jonah knew better, how much more do we How much more do we know better those of us who live on this side of the cross in the resurrection of Christ? We've seen the great depths to which God would go to save pagans like the Ninevites and like Daytonians. We've seen God come to us in flesh and cross every barrier to rescue us from death. We've seen God come to us in flesh. We've seen him become We've seen him become unclean so that we might be brought in and made clean. We've seen him cry tears and experience heartache. We've seen him suffer torture and crucifixion. We've seen him face death and burial. We've seen the depths to which he would go and the barriers that he would cross to save the likes of us and to form a people for himself from every nation of the earth. 
He came not just to teach us a lesson on compassion, like in Jonah here, but to embody the compassion of God for us. He embodied God's compassion in that he came to die, to bring us near, to rescue us when we deserve God's judgment. He sought to die, not like Jonah, because he was angry at God's compassion and kindness to sinners. He sought to die in order to extend God's compassion and kindness to sinners. He became an outsider so that outsiders might be brought in. He became unclean so that the unclean may be made clean. He crossed all the boundaries and barriers to save us. And so therefore, how can we not cross barriers and reach out our hands and love to our neighbors and to the nations? How can the gospel not so compel us to make him known in our city? How can the gospel not so compel us to make him known to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to our families and our children? And not only that, how can the gospel not compel us to to go to the nations, the 400 plus unreached people groups of the earth? In light of the compassion and mercy shown to us in the cross of Christ, how could we be unconcerned and indifferent to our neighborhoods and the nations? And therefore, as our time in Jonah comes to a close, consider Veritas, consider all the ways that you have been recipients of the grace and mercy, the patience and steadfast love of God. Consider how the Lord has rescued you like he did Jonah. Consider how he is patient with you like he was with Jonah. Consider how he relentlessly pursues you like he did with Jonah. Consider how he's used you for his kingdom and purposes like he did with Jonah. Consider how Christ came for you, died for you, rose for you, and brought you into his kingdom. And after you consider all of that, genuinely consider, has your disposition toward your neighbors and toward the nations reflected God's compassionate character toward you? Do you care more about your comforts than your lost neighbor? Do you harbor private and hidden prejudices against those who are different from you? Are you indifferent toward your neighbor? And beloved, as you consider all of these things, know that the God who rescued you is patient with you like he is with Jonah. In Christ, his disposition of you as you consider these things is not one of anger. He's not going to wash his hands of you and be done with you. He is relentlessly committed to you in his son. He is the God who pursues the unpursuable, who loves the unlovable. He shows mercy to the malicious and compassion to the callous. He's not indifferent toward the indifferent. And so you can consider all of these things from a place of rest and full security in Christ. Let's pray together.